0: This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by A&E's hit series Bates Motel. Catch the new season when it returns, Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. This episode is also sponsored by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now. Learn more about Roku players and try HBO Now free for one month by going to roku.com slash tvtalk. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we'll talk about when fans turn against a TV showrunner. Plus, we sat down with Viola Davis to talk about how to get away with murder. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi, Gazelle. This is... Sorry, this is just, like, really difficult and weird. (laughs) I
2: know, meat's for me Uh, too.
1: This is Margaret's Last Week on the Vulture TV podcast and at Vulture. And we're
2: really, really bummed to see her go. It's time for the next adventure, and um, I'm very sad to be leaving the podcast. Certainly this has been... A blast, Uh, not just with Matt and Gazelle and Sam and Henry, but also with like, we've gotten such good like listener feedback and interesting emails and fun phone calls and especially fun tweets too, which was a pleasant surprise because oftentimes tweets are. Not Shitty. Fun. Uh, <laughs> so please know that we did see them and hear them and read them, and uh, it has been a real pleasure. And the podcast will continue without me. It's not like this is the last episode of the show or anything. No, it's
1: a sad day, but we're going to continue <laughs> having great conversations about TV and bring you awesome guests, and we'll update you on the status of Margaret's seat. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, we're just raising a glass of, hmm. of wine to... <laughs> to margaret lyons (laughs) to margaret there's no one like her
3: (laughs) (laughs) one of the funniest people i've ever personally met
2: oh that is very sweet but also like liven up your life dude come on Mm. (laughs) oh no but like how i mean
3: and the most honest
2: (laughs) (laughs) all right that'll take
3: I'm going to be
0: really, really
3: emphatic.
2: <laughs> Gather round for Margaret's Overthinking Corner. I love Margaret's Overthinking Corner. Stoke your feuds, get your pipes. Um, I'm into it.
3: <laughs> a lot of the times you can't even stand to look at the show. You have to kind of listen to it. Like you're shielding your face I with your hand. I think
2: it could get more horrible. Drama doesn't need to create a nexus because it doesn't need you to cooperate in the same way that comedy requires cooperation.
3: <laughs> Margaret actually seized up when I said the name of that but show. Is
2: this really happening to me? Matt, Margaret.
3: Hi. I'm, I'm doing uh, it live. It's like a religious fanatic the way he tells these stories.
2: Everything's shiny but you don't know why
3: Basically mind folks for the audience. Here
2: you go nerds.
1: <laughs> Get it up. So you know we've talked about this a little bit but not quite in this way. just this idea of shows and movies as well becoming kind of community property. And some people wanted Chris Carter, the creator of the (laughs) X-Files, to be replaced as showrunner because they didn't like this latest season. Yeah. So why don't you just start us off, Matt, by telling us your feelings about this?
3: Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, what fucking nerve. (laughs) Really, seriously. I mean, this is Chris Carter we're talking about, A, and B, there are no flaws in that season that are not basically the flaws of the last four or five seasons of the X-Files. It's always been a crapshoot. They've always had episodes that were amazing and episodes that were kind of, eh, you know, particularly in the latter years. And and Chris Carter has always pulled, like, the mythology basically out of his butt from week to week. And it was something that you kind of put up with. I didn't think that uh, the 10th season of it was, like, wretched beyond compare. Like, I actually slightly prefer it to, say, season 9 where um, Duchovny is barely even a presence on the show, you know? Um and yeah, they had some bum episodes. I'm not going to deny that. I thought, you know, we've talked on a previous edition of the podcast about the pilot, which I thought was really, really clumsy. Uh, the second episode was a slight improvement. The third by Darren Morgan was great. I thought the fourth was excellent. I thought both of those episodes are as good as anything that the X Files has ever done. And uh, that Babylon episode was was a disaster in a lot of ways, and we've talked about that. Um, but there's still some thematic. Uh, aspects buried in there that are interesting and there's some scenes with Scully and Mulder that are great in that and and the whole thing the sheer crazy kooky quality of that appealed to me like the fact that it was just such a curveball and I'm kind of in the tank for Carter I got to admit like there are certain people I'm in the tank for because they're just so goddamn original so much of what's on TV comes out of Chris Carter and this idea that we're gonna you know like call for him to be fired as if he's the coach of a football team that had a bad season is just stupid
1: I think what's troubling you here is you have this is a show that has such a legacy and, you know, we kind of encountered this same conversation with True Detective, with Nick Pizzolato and whether he should be allowed to come on for season three because he fucked up season two so badly. Do you think it that that is a different case because it's an anthology series, but he's still the creator of the show. I don't think
3: Nick Pizzolatto should be completely kept away from True Detective, but there's nothing wrong with putting some constraints on him. Like, you know, David Milch made Deadwood... Which eventually cratered in part because he was his working methods were too chaotic and expensive. Like that's the that's the, ultimately the reason why they why they pulled the plug after season three. And then he made John from Cincinnati, which was a disaster. And one of the reasons it was a disaster was a Nick Pizzolatto situation where he just had control over everything, and he was kind of disappearing into his own navel every week. And uh, by the time they got to Luck. HBO said, yeah, we'll give you another show, David. We think you're a genius on the condition that you have somebody else who's actually running the show, and that turned out to be Michael Mann. And, and we, you know, the battles between them are kind of legendary, but basically the deal was David Milch handled the writing and Michael Mann handled everything else, and they had a firewall church and state. And I thought, you know, until a series of horses started to die and they had to pull the plug on that show too, that kind of arrangement seemed to work. And there's all kinds of things in between um give the showrunner absolute power and fire them.
2: I think the Chris Carter-Nick uh comparison is a little misguided because we have two seasons of True Detective and we have ten seasons of The X-Files and two movies. Right. Well, that's why it's different. But I also think that, like, people have had plenty of chances to knock off The X-Files. Plenty. Yes. And no one has really done it that well. No. I think for True Detective that's different. So I think some of what we can perceive as like inventive and fascinating about season 1, whose inventiveness and fascination I think is vastly overstated. Um I think the truth is there are lots of people who can do true detective better than Nick Pizzolatto can. Well,
1: I guess then the question is is like the fact that someone created something enough reason for people to want them to feel like they should have some ownership of it. I mean, I guess with HBO, HBO ultimately has the ownership of it, but they are the creative
2: mind. Your, my, your also,
3: mileage may vary, as they say.
2: I also think for True Detective, given that it is an anthology, there's no point in making something that's True Detective season three from somebody else. With an, like, it's going to have a new setup anyway. Just make a new show, you know, right. like just call it like Other Detect. You know, like, it doesn't, <laughs> other... it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> True like, or false detective, detective right. right? Like yeah. I don't, I don't know that that we like. I'm not sure. I think trying to, like, draft off of the name of especially a show like that, um, that feels sort of tacky to me. Just start again. Just have a new thing. If it's a very good, like, interesting buddy cop show, um, that will do well because people apparently cannot get enough of that. Like, I don't think you need a true detective thing uh, or the true detective banner, you know, to to fly over a show like that. Well,
3: and there are also people, certain people in, in, you know, all... Areas of the arts who are life forces, and there is something about them that is so distinctive, so unique, that if you try to replace them, you're just going to get, at best, a kind of a zombie facsimile of that thing. And the season without Dan Harmon of Community is a great example of right. that. Like, it's like this synthetic, incredibly convincing simulation of community, but it doesn't have that spark, that crazy, animalistic, reptile brain, just gibberish spouting savant thing that community had and uh, and I think the same thing uh, would uh, have happened if you know, in some alternate universe where there was a fourth season of Deadwood without David Milch. They would have oh, that's found it. You appreciate. know, I know. See, that's what I'm saying is I would have tried to find somebody, I guess, who could write dialogue that was Milchian or something, but it would just sound like somebody doing an impression of David Milch. I mean, that's how distinctive he is. And that's how distinctive Chris Carter's vibe is so distinctive because he's very, very serious and yet very, very playful. And there's this kind of Zen Surfer thing that's very opaque and unreadable about him where you can't tell if he's fucking with you, if he really means this, if he's running a con? Like, does he really believe all this shit? How much is he just sort of uh, treading water and hoping nobody notices? Does he really have a grand plan? How intuitive is he really? Uh, These are all questions that have never really been answered as much as he's talked about the show and as much as other people who've worked on the show have talked about working on the show. We still don't know the answer to this, and that's all part of the mystique of the X-Files. And if you pull him out of it, I think you're going to get a situation like uh, when Aaron Sorkin was no longer part of the West Wing. It took a long time for them to recover their momentum, and what they eventually arrived at was something that was different from but not necessarily equal to the Sorkin years.
2: I do think, though, that a slight difference, or or not even a slight, a significant difference between Chris Carter and Aaron Sorkin or Chris Carter and Dan Harmon is uh, Chris Carter doesn't write every episode of The X-Files. Right. And... Very famously has not written some of the most beloved episodes of The X-Files, some of the best episodes, and the most significant episodes. I'm not interested in removing Chris Carter as the showrunner or to be like, you can't have this anymore. We're taking this away from you. But do I like am I more interested? Certainly this season, I preferred episodes that he did not write. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite episodes of the show, I... I very few of them are chris carter written episodes
3: some of some of mine are but but I would say another thing that is great about the x files this is like what's great about the x files episode of vulture t v podcast then <laughs> that's fine with me but uh Chris Carter is in addition to being a showrunner and a, and a real popular artist, like the real deal um he is an impresario he's like a Robert Altman, you know, like one of these people are like you know uh like a studio boss, like one of these people who hires other amazing people and then he lets them be themselves. And one of the reasons why he's great is he hires somebody like Glenn Morgan or Darren Morgan or Frank Spotnitz, and he doesn't ask them to be a Chris Carter clone. Not only does he encourage them to be themselves, he seems to treasure it. And if you read interviews with him, when he talks about his favorite moments in his favorite episodes of The X-Files, he doesn't mention his own episodes. He, ta- he praises other people, and mm-hmm. he's really sincere about it. And that's, that's valuable, too. And I think if there were a way to say, like, hey, Chris, would you mind uh, having more episodes written by other people? Maybe they could work something out. But what really just galls me is there's a, there is an entitlement to popular culture, to the way people interact with popular culture, that is very cold, brutish. And, I, you know, I'm sorry to use this phrase, but, like, it's a late capitalist bullshit mentality towards art. This idea that, you know, we love this thing that—I love this thing that I watch. Therefore, I own it, too. Like, I'm a shareholder in the corporation, and I have a stock certificate in my house. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. You watch it. You tweet about it. Maybe you write an angry email to the network, or you send them, you know, some kind of significant object to to register your protest against what happened this season or whatever. But that's the end of it, and you don't own the show. You don't get a vote. It's not a democracy. Otherwise, art becomes fucking commerce.
0: This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by A&E's hit series Bates Motel. On Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern, Bates Motel reopens on A&E for its fourth season. A modern-day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho, Bates Motel stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norman and Norma suspicious of one another and their trust issues will be worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as this season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy and season four promises to get crazier than ever. Be sure to tune in to Bates Motel Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E.
2: I think TV occupies this very difficult position there between art and commerce, in all of these ways that we're told that we don't get a vote as viewers. Obviously, that's true, except when we're told, um, "Please watch this show. Please save the show." Fan enthusiasm, like I do get a vote, and I vote with my eyeballs, and I vote with right. my remote control or whatever, you know. Yeah. And, and certainly, I'm not in a Nielsen member, but. Um,
3: but that's just a glorified version of applause. Um, in my I opinion. don't think
2: it is because I. Uh, well, with Veronica Mars, they actually made it come back. Anyway. Yeah, people yeah. Do, like that does happen. And certainly if everyone well, but goes I mean, it, their but, eyeballs, that show doesn't exist See, anymore. but I
3: don't think we're disagreeing on that because like if you applaud loud enough, the band that has said their set is over comes back out and does an encore.
2: Yeah, except if you're the only person in the room clapping, there's no concert. So like, <laughs> you know, you have to like... I'm really
3: going to miss you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but right. I mean, I think I, like, I agree and I don't think that shows written by fandom communities are better than... Like if that was really a viable thing, um, we would have more shows that do that. But but it's not, right? Like, I don't think we write shows by taking a vote of who wants to see what. Um, that said, uh, shows don't exist without audiences. Like, there are many, many diaries out there, but there are very few television shows. and yeah. Especially because a TV show is ongoing in a way that a film or an album is done. Like, the creative process has... It, 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 has ended. It's before. a discrete object. Yeah, and, and you may or may not like it, and you may or may not consume it, or buy it, or, or tell people about it, but the creative process for it has concluded, and your feedback does not affect how that movie looks, but fan feedback does affect how television shows look, and it does affect, you know, for example, let's take Scandal. Season one of Scandal, people were kind of blah on, and me included. It was just like, eh, this is like a so-so procedural. I am not lit up about this at all. So their numbers are not strong. Right. So they decide, let's throw everything we have at this. Who knows how many episodes we have left? Probably not many. Let's go nuts. Let's have a shooting that like, like, let's have the president get shot at. Let's have all this crazy stuff. Let's blow it up. And they did. And suddenly- The Olivia
3: Fitz relationship is cranked up to 11. Oh,
2: yeah. And so suddenly we have this like huge explosion in, um, I mean, I think we have like some literal explosions and then we have this really super amped up much soapier much more um,
3: Byzantine intrigue every week
2: Yeah, and and suddenly now everyone's like hell yes I love this show right. and people are yeah. drawn to it and then it's like a sensation especially in seasons two and three as like fan enthusiasm builds as it becomes a, such a social media phenomenon so the idea that we don't get a vote is false like no and I people. yeah but see that's that's uh, you I, know
3: I guess I didn't express myself clearly what I'm saying is you there's a relationship between the audience and the art Because it is a performance, like television is a performance in a way that film or theater or a novel is not, because it's happening every week, it's happening, you know, every season they have a batch of episodes, and they can retool, they can re-rack basically and start over and tinker with some things based on how the audience responded. Like, it's this organic living thing in a way that other art forms are not. That's true. What I object to is this idea that ultimately the viewer is not only the boss in the sense of determining the show's fortunes, which is always going to be true, but is entitled to get in there and give their creative input and and sometimes what happens in that case is the loudest fans are the ones who determine what happened.
1: Well, I think I think ulti- you're right, ultimately they're not going to it depends on the show and it depends on what the conversation is. And like for with girls, for example, we saw a lot of people criticize that show for not being representative enough of different types of people. And you know, the sh- Jenny Coner and Lena Dunham both have said they've taken those criticisms into account and changed <laughs> how they cast. Not necessarily for huge roles on the show, but they have, you know, they have thought about that and they've they've internalized it maybe more so than they did in the beginning. Yeah,
3: but I would just say we're in that in that specific case. I don't think that's a piece of advice they should have heeded. I think it made them inclined to do something that they are shitty at. I think every attempt they've made to address race and ethnicity on girls has been mostly a miserable failure, really. I mean, it's like it's the show at its least organic. And if you're going to do a show about people living in a bubble of whiteness, just go ahead and do that and own it. That's a case where I think listening to the fans was, was artistically a mistake. Like, it's better to just be more hated and be true to yourself and uh, and let the chips fall where they may. I mean, so
2: imagine circumstances under which Lena Dunham is more hated because <laughs> yeah, like I, I I mean I think it's sort of a a difficult example for a lot of reasons.
1: No, it, it's true, and I mean I think it depends on every show you look at, it, and it's to Margaret's point, like this is something that showrunners have they have to acknowledge and think about. Yeah, they, it's do. Like they Whether or not they succeed at doing it is not even the point. It's The fact that they are listening and they want like, for example, I spoke to Mary Elizabeth Ellis last week about The Grinder and she talked about how her role, you know, a lot of people complained about how she was just too much of a TV wife. They wanted to see more from her because a lot of people loved her as an actress and the the showrunners and the writers in the writers room, they actually took that into account and they gave her more of a story arc. And, you know, like, it plays out in little ways. It plays out maybe more so on certain shows than others. You know, you have creators who are maybe not going to give a fuck what anyone thinks. Yeah. So, but, but we
2: also still see those creators be able to change course because they cast someone in a small role and discovered that that person was really electric on camera and there was something really compelling about them. Kieran and on Mad Men. Sure. Matt Weiner, we have heard him say that he wrote material for... Kieran Chipka because she turned out to be a really good actress, right? Yeah, the whole way.
3: writer's room felt that way yeah, about it. They're right? like, can I write another scene for her? She's great. And, and you
2: have famous stories of like, we were going to kill um, Carol Hathaway in the pilot of ER, but then when you see Juliana Margulies, you're like... And I kind of dig her. Like <laughs> They I were going to kill
3: Wal- Walton Goggins in The Pile of Justified. They were going to kill him off at the end of that. Can you yeah, imagine? Yeah, or
2: kill um, Jesse in the first episode of Breaking Bad. That seems right? un- unthinkable so, now. I know. And if these <laughs> things are movies, like, you don't change that. Like, that. that is not available. And so I right. think... Um, the sort of feedback loop that exists for television is very unusual. I also like I get what you mean about like fan senses of entitlement and that being crazy and, and sort of out of pace. At the same time, like, do you think people shouldn't write blog posts that are like, I'm mad? Calling for that on Twitter is not the same thing as doing something. to. Oh, but it's not that. Twitter.
3: It's it's like critics. It's like prominent critics who have done it. You know, look, and it, they don't have any power and Fox isn't going to do it. They're already talking to Chris Carter about new, you know, doing another season. And why wouldn't they? The ratings have been great and they've got a lot of publicity for it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of money to be made. It's just the idea of it that bothers me because I think it's symptomatic of of a larger problem in the culture that irritates the crap out of me, which is this sense that the that the artist, you know, I sentimentally elevate the artist and I defend the artist. And maybe it's stupid of me to do it this way, but I just feel like we treat the artist like they're, you know, like it's a service industry, and it's not a service industry. There are a million service industries out there; they're all valuable. People who do uh, their jobs well in them are to be valued, but art is not the same thing.
2: I think, and I say this as somebody who obviously, like, you know, television couldn't be more important to me as a human, to me in my life, to me as, like, like, yes, television is my best friend. I'm Kenneth the Page. But you know, I don't think Rosewood is art. Yeah, I don't think CSI Cyber is art. Mm-hmm. I don't think um, I don't think everything that's on TV is inherently art, and I certainly don't want to be the arbiter who gets to be like, "Welcome to Art Court, prove your case." But uh, you know, there's we're talking about a huge range of output here, some of which is. Majestic and beautiful and inventive and sort of creates in all of us like a sensation of being alive that we couldn't experience in any other yeah. way. And, and we're transformed by this or fascinated by it. We have like real emotional things happening and, and it like lights up this part of you and, and it's wonderful and important. But that's like not everything.
3: No, 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 no. Clearly like, not. I don't Clearly think not. Clearly not.
2: I don't think Two Broke Girls is doing that. And so yeah, I but
3: think- I'm not going to make a case if they try to replace the showrunner of Two Broke Girls. Okay. I'm not going to try to make a case if they try to replace, you know, you know, CSI Cleveland or whatever the fuck is running right now with that label on it. I mean, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. There's certain shows okay. that are art, and those are the ones that I care about. Okay. Or the ones that at least have the potential to be art.
2: I mean, I think that's what we all prefer to talk about in general on this podcast. No. But I do think it's hard sometimes as a TV fan... Like, I think some Rosewood fans are going to be like mad at me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. It is art. How dare you? <laughs> right? Like, well, um And, and.
3: Well, maybe the people who love that show, it is. I hope You know, maybe, and, you know, there's mean, I... a lot of like, you know, probably uh, NCIS Los Angeles, there's probably people who are like, don't replace the showrunner. That'll lose its personality. I don't know. I
0: don't know. (laughs) I mean,
3: I guess the larger point is let's let's not act like we have gone to Chipotle and had a bad burrito and now we're going to write a bad review on Yelp. You know, like, let's have a little more respect for what these people are doing.
2: Yeah, because a bad burrito at Chipotle can actually kill you. (laughs) It's dangerous to eat things with food poisoning.
1: Coming up, we'll sit down with Viola Davis. But first, a message from our sponsors.
0: This episode is brought to you by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players give you the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now, plus innovative features like voice search, unbiased search results, and private listening via the Roku remote or your mobile app. With HBO Now, you get all of HBO, including every season, every episode of HBO's addictive original series, past and present, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service. No TV package required. And it's available on Roku players. Roku gives you TV the way you want it. Watch what you love, including HBO Now. Try it free for one month. Visit roku.com slash tvtalk. That's R-O-K-U dot com slash T-V-T-A-L-K to learn more about Roku players and to get your one-month free HBO Now trial.
1: Matt, Margaret, and I recently sat down with Viola Davis at a Midtown Hotel to talk television, race, and culture. And this is our conversation with her. We want to talk mostly about how to get away with murder um, because we're a TV podcast. And I just wanted to start by asking, you know, your character, Annalise Keating, on that show is really unlike anything, any character I've ever seen. When Mm -hmm. you first got the script, is the Annalise we see today, was that what was on the page when you first got it? Is that who you saw?
4: Um. Yeah. Well, it was the beginnings of that. Yeah. You never know how it's going to be developed. You just see the pilot script. Right. Um, I think it was, well, yeah, I did think there was going to be as many sex scenes because the pilot was having <laughs> sex with me right. on top of a car in my parking lot and we shot it in Philadelphia in the freezing cold. So I knew <laughs> that was going to happen. But yeah, I saw the beginnings of that. Someone who probably would be a no holes bar type mm-hmm. of character.
1: Did you envision any kind of childhood or back like grow, upbringing
4: for her at that Absolutely mm-hmm. I envisioned everything but I usually I write a whole biography that lasts for dozens of pages mm-hmm. But I think I stopped at maybe 30 pages for her because I realized I was writing everything and then they changed her name. It was Annalise DeWitt. They changed to Annalise Keating. I had all kinds of things that I had brothers and this and that. And then I realized none of those things were true. So then I realized that one of the things that I had to do was I I was married to certain things and certain things I had to let go. I had to understand that TV is a very different process.
1: What kinds of things have you held on to that you envisioned early on?
4: Well, one of the things I held on to is uh, the reason why I feel a lot of women get hard is because of hurt. So I had to envision a past for her that um which i can't tell you okay See, you almost got sneaky there
1: was trying real hard and i was going right along with
4: you but what i found um you know i've been at it for 30 years professionally and one of the things i have learned is to leave yourself alone i think that when you think about what you're going to do too much. It loses its spont- spontaneity. There is no way that you could tell me exactly what you're going to say when you walk out of this door and go back to your life. You know, your kid, your wife, whoever, your spouse will get angry with you. Maybe it will spark some kind of pain and the vomit will come out, which is your pain. You don't know what you're going to say. So there's a certain amount of leaving yourself alone and not planning it that is really the sweet spot in acting
3: is it physically exhausting playing some of the scenes that you've had to play
4: absolutely and there's a lot of that in the coming episodes that is it was very physically exhausting because it's very emotional
2: is there a point that you're like, oh, I wish you would just do, like, a musical episode and, like, let loose or, like, have sort of, like, a more... Because the show can be, like, so
4: tense. Is there any time it's like, oh, let's, like, have a more fun? It's like when Sam came back and we had a couple of scenes (laughs) where he was just rubbing my belly and doing some nice... I was like, this feels pretty good.
1: (laughs) 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 So, last week we saw Annalise in these flashback scenes. And it was interesting to, you know, get a, a little bit of her past. What would you say... You know, we've. She's such a. She's become such an amoral character, but not in this way. Or when we meet her, she's a very amoral character, but not in this way that, say, like Frank Underwood on House of Cards is, where mm-hmm. you just see him as someone who's evil. You know, did she? Do you imagine that she had kind of a more, a point in her life where she was a more idealistic lawyer? Absolutely.
4: And I, th- you're gonna see that, way more idealistic mm-hmm. in terms of, um, really helping people. Really being great at what she does. Um, Really being more grassroots. Really being more of a teacher. And you have to believe when someone is that hardcore that something happened to kind of, you know, flip the switch. You know, there's got to be a nucleus to it, Mm -hmm. you know, to her and Sam and that connection and her and Frank. You're going to get all of that.
0: What
1: are your conversations like with Pete? He's he's noted how you've made him a better writer
4: and that, you know, your input Mm -hmm. is really helpful to him. Well, what I've gotten, one of the things I say growing up in poverty, and you know, people may dispute this and that's fine, is that when you grow up in poverty people don't have as many filters. When you're in a neighborhood that is impoverished you know who the town drunk is, you know who's beating their wife, um, everything is out in the open. It's a smaller space that you're operating in. And so what that does is it's ripe ground for you to be an observer. And so one of the things I always tell Pete is there are times when people write television based on what you've seen before in other TV shows. For instance, she's a lead character. She's sexual. It's got to be someone like, I don't know, I'm just going to throw a name. Vanessa Williams. Mm -hmm. She's got to be someone who has the body. She's got to be someone who's desirable. She's got to look like this. She's got to sound like this. And my experience with that is, says who? That's not the people in my life. I know women who are black widows who probably size 26. (laughs) And they've had lots of men, and they have lots of secrets you know and i just feel like i'm always um at least in my way forcing him to take more chances with storylines like that why can't you do that what are you going to sacrifice you're going to sacrifice an omg moment what if it's an omg moment that's a smaller omg moment maybe it's just something that moves people just a little bit gives people just a little bit of a glimpse of her pathology
3: talking about those oh my god moments that's something that that network television has really gotten very very good at those kinds of shows where more happens in an episode than might have happened in a whole season of the show <laughs> 10 yeah, years ago exactly do you ever worry that the audience will get worn out or that you're going to run out of ideas or that it's going to absolutely
4: i mean it seems like absolutely i do it's not within my control i'm an actor I try to do my part to the best of my ability. And I try to influence to the best of my ability. And the rest is left up to the powers that be. But I do feel it's, it's like someone said about this show. I remember I saw the show when I was younger and I loved it on Broadway. It was a musical. Loved it. And the reviews came out and they kind of tore it apart. There were some things that they really loved about it, but they tore it apart. And I thought, oh my God, Were they looking at the same show? And I remember someone saying, Viola, all those things are true that they said in that review. The bad things are true. But it's still great. And that's kind of how I feel about how to get away with murder. I mean, I know that people say there's a lot going on or whatever. But I think what it does right cannot be ignored. It can't be. Listen, Me being cast as Annalise alone, stop, exclamation point, is OMG. You know, when people just kind of nod their heads and do that, I'm like, okay, you name an example of you seeing anything like that on network television. The fact that they cast a woman who's dark-skinned and 50, who is my size, my everything, taking off a wig in an episode, doing all of those things, what it does right is worth a whole lot. Because I think they're trying to... At least we're trying to reach a 10. You know, you may fall short, but at least you're trying to reach a 10. You're not trying to reach a 2 and do a really good 2 job. <laughs> you know?
3: You're also versatile. You're also somebody who's been in the trenches as a character actor for for a while. It's great. Yeah. that's it's also That my... also feels revolutionary in a lesser way.
4: Yeah, I mean, it feels revolutionary. I feel like it's a, natu- a natural trajectory of of a career. You'll have a Glenn Close, a Sally Field, a Kira Sedgwick. They've been out in the trenches too. And then, you know, they experienced a kind of renaissance in their careers in television. The same with me. You know, I went through the trenches of Juilliard, Off-Broadway, Broadway, you know, Tony Awards. And this seems to be a natural trajectory of, of my career, you know.
1: In terms of, you know, the, the broader industry, you know, things have changed a lot in the past few years. And now we have you and Kerry Washington and Taraji P. Henson leading your own shows. But do you think that's indicative of some sort of sea change?
4: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Shonda Rhimes got the PGA Award this past year. Um, the Norman Lear Award, I believe she got. And she her speech was fantastic. I always feel like the most, most of the revolutionary speeches get ignored. <laughs> mm. I always say that because people haven't caught up to it yet. But one of the things that she said was that she deserved the award. I love that she said that. Loved it. That's number one. And the second thing she said is the reason why I deserve this award is because I ask for what I want. When I walk in the room, I said, this is my vision. This is what I want. And she got it. That most people don't even do that. They don't. You know, they say a closed mouth doesn't get fed, and I think that's a lot of times what happens with women. You know, um, she certainly is a woman of vision, and she was the first person to put Olivia Pope out there. You know, once again, people can have a lot of criticism, but Olivia Pope is the first black woman on TV no. since Diane Carroll.
1: Totally, and I mean, this has definitely become a big part of the conversation about people prioritizing mm-hmm. diversity um, on, in TV and film. Who do you, is there anyone you think is doing a good job of doing that of making it a priority or who has been doing it over the years and without kind of this pressure from
4: the culture to do that? I don't know, Sean has been doing it, yeah. Lee Daniels has been doing it. You know, BT is definitely doing it with being Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. Um there's Gabrielle Union that's definitely a revolutionary an role. Show. Definitely. Um, I tell people it's like, you know, Be a part of the change you want to see. You know, don't just make uh, diversity um, a hashtag. And I know that there's a lot more people out there who have a vision for what they want to see. Um, My vision, in terms of what I want to see, is I don't want anyone putting any limitations on me. When I went to Juilliard and I saw the work that was being done at that school, I saw people who were given permission and the freedom to make mistakes, to just go out there, to just be bold. That's what I want to be with Annalise. I don't care if people think it's messy. I don't think if people even think it's messy storytelling. It is brave and it is bold. And people are not putting any limitations on Annalise, on her in terms of her pathology. You know, they're not saying, you got to be likable. We want to we hug you so you can be warm and fuzzy. You know, why can't you be heroic? Why can't you be a mentor? Why do I have to be a mentor? Why do I have to be heroic? You say that, James Gandolfini? <laughs> I was going to say, she's
3: not representative of anybody yeah, but herself. Say, yeah. Say it,
4: to Brian Cranston? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. You've talked about growing up with shows like Sanford and Sons and, and Good Times and shows that kind of... when there was an abundance of black sitcoms but they also kind of made caricatures of the stars. I'm curious what those shows meant to you at that
4: point in your life when you were watching them. They meant everything because they were people who looked like me who represented the world that I knew Mm -hmm. and that's what art does at its best or entertainment does at its best is it tries to include you in it and so I love that but one thing that made me know that I wanted to be an actor is I knew the difference between entertainment and real craft. And I wanted to do the craft. I knew the difference between, for instance, Esther Roll and Jimmy J. J. Walker, or Isabel Sanford and Jimmy J. J. Walker, you know. I knew the difference with Miss Tyson when she came on and did the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Yeah. I knew The difference, and there is a difference, and you all know what I'm saying, that we weren't just chucking and jiving or just people who had swagger. They were actors who dared to be different and craft a performance of real palpable human beings, something that was different about it, that made me lean in and wake up.
1: You also, on another note, you have... Your own production company, correct, with your yep. husband, Juvie, Juvie
4: Productions. Are, it's a play on both of our names, Juvie. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a good of it. Mm-hmm. And
1: you're producing a Harriet Tubman. Harriet D-
4: Tubman with Amblin Entertainment. Kirk Ellis is writing that. Tony Kushner is writing Barbara Jordan biopic based on the great Texas congresswoman out of Houston. Um, we have custody coming out. James Lapine directed that with Catalina Moreno. Sandino, Hayden Penteri, Ellen Bernstein, my husband's in that, too. Yeah. <laughs> we like working together. <laughs> yeah.
1: And um, How do you choose these projects? What, what has drawn you to, you know...
4: I'm interested in crafting a performance that's different from who I am. Barbara Jordan, to me, is an interesting character. She was a closeted lesbian. She was probably one of the greatest congresswomans that ever served, and... I think that that would be just tremendous, tremendous to bring her to life. And Harriet Tubman. I mean, not only did she free a lot of slaves, she was involved in the women's suffrage movement. She was the first woman who served in a military raid. She basically started Red Cross. She's a highly interesting individual, and I don't think anyone knows who she is. They just see her as a black woman with the rag on her head that's it that's all the pictures we see and that's what she's reduced to you know i'm not trying to you know play someone who is just representative of something that's very kumbaya i'm trying to play real human beings
3: when young actors of color talk to you about their own careers and they talk they talk about your success and they say i want to i want to do what you do
4: what practical advice do you give them human advice you know what, I try not to give advice anymore because I know people are not listening. (laughs) But, um, no, seriously. But the first thing I want to tell them is it's a hard balance to do this now. It really is. To dream big, but also to be realistic. And I think that what young actors do, well, you know what, not just young actors, young people, is entitlement. I don't understand people who turn down work, who haven't done anything. You could turn down work if you're a CEO of a company or if you've been out there like Meryl Streep can turn down a job. Julia Roberts can turn down a job. Sandra Bullock can turn down a job. You can always turn down a job if if it interferes with something morally that's challenging to you. That's absolutely you know within you. but i don't understand actors who want to be denzel and they haven't they haven't even been out there for a year. They have nothing on their resume. I don't get it. I have a 30-year career. This show has come to me after what? I don't know, being on Broadway three times. I don't know how many plays I've done, you know, regionally. I don't know how many TV shows I've done, movies I've done. I've lost track work begets work that's how pro- producers choose and now you have so many young actors who just they want to be superstars from the very beginning
1: i think that's definitely something you see a lot in a lot of industries now it's in our industry too. Yeah exactly, you know? yeah exactly yeah it's so
4: so what's going on <laughs> but it's it's through all of my work that i've developed a way of working yeah. that i've developed a boldness in in what i do i don't understand how you can get it if you haven't done that
1: you you said you you know you've been working 30 years before you got this this mm-hmm. uh, role was there ever a point where you're like i'm just it's not worth it anymore or did you always no? it was see, always worth it yeah. as
4: long as i was working it was wor- worth it if I would if I were doing on a pl- a play off Broadway it was w- worth it cuz I was working as an actor. It wasn't about making it, it wasn't about celebrity, it was about being an actor. And that's what's interesting to me is do you want to be an actor? Do you want to be a celebrity? Right. It was always worth it. Now, if I were, you know, pushing burgers somewhere, then then I would have said is it worth it? Right. But I've been working as an actor all of these years. I've been actually making a living. I just haven't been making as much money as i'm making now but i was doing what i loved to do so it was always worth it
2: are there roles now that sort of are on your bucket list still where you're like oh when i was coming up i always wanted to play that role or i always wish i had oh my God, that kind yeah. of stuff are there still things you look at yeah
4: like doing nora in the doll's house on broadway are you kidding me i would love to do that it's like it's a beautiful role. It's tremendous. Some anything head of gobbler, anything that's big and bold, anything where I can fail greatly, mm-hmm. I would love to do because here's the thing, and this is where I show my shortcomings. I always wanted to be great. I always want to be really good at what I did because that's why I love Merrill. That's why I love Miss Tyson. Is they're really great at what they do. You know, it's like um, they move people with what they do. I want to do something big. And I could really stink at it, but you know what? At least I know I did it, you know, and I'll be a better actor for it afterwards. Other actors know what I mean when I say that. You're a better actor after you've done a really big thing and you've screwed it up. (laughs) (laughs) Or Or you've been really successful at it, but at least it was bold You know, are there big things
2: that you look back at? You're like, whoa, that was one I really messed up because I feel like
4: yeah, there was, you know, there was. I played Isabella in Measure for Measure, and there were some things I really got right, and other things that were really screwed up. I'd like a second chance at that. You know, not a lot of people saw that, thank God, but I came out of it a better actor.
1: Are there any TV tropes that you would love to just see retired that you
2: just are done with? Like what did we talk about? We talked about like, well, I mean definitely like, uh, I mean sad middle, male crisis, female sad male cri- white male crisis shows,
1: <laughs> oh, I the Middle Eastern definitely. terrorist. Oh yeah,
4: definitely. <laughs> um, and oh gosh, I can definitely retire the really maternal, good-hearted, strong. I don't need Buddha, Jesus, black woman. She can go to the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay for the burial <laughs> yeah. Why <How>
1: is that? <laughs> That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can
2: find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge.
3: I'm Matt Zeller Seitz, and you can find me at the nearest bar where I'll be mourning the departure of Margaret Lyons.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Not dying, guys. I'm just getting a new job.
0: It's <laughs> Whatever, okay. Margaret. I'll join you, Matt. <laughs> <Yeah. All right. laughs>